Good morning. Thanks for that water. Greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. It's a pleasure to see all of you here. I'm glad to see a full house. There's a sense in which um, taking on a responsibility or a product calls for and obligates you to certain actions. So if you buy a vehicle, there are certain responsibilities that go along with that vehicle. One of them would be maintenance. If you take a wife, then there are certain responsibilities that you incur by, by doing that. There are certain needs that you need to meet. If you buy a house, it calls you to, uh, to responsibilities such as mowing and cleaning and a host of other things and maintenance and, and uh, paying taxes and, and, and the list goes on. There are things that are, that you are responsible for when you, um, take on that responsibility. I would like to talk this morning about the call of the gospel. The call of the gospel. The gospel is also similar. It uh, not only brings blessing and peace and and a host of other things into your life, but there are also responsibilities that are associated with it. First of all, though, I'd like to ask the question: What is the gospel? The um, the the gospel. The word gospel means good news. But uh, for it to ha- be really good news, there needs to, you need to have the bad news first. Or else it's not really good news. And the bad news is we are sinners. We are sinners because we sin and we sin because we're sinners. That uh, we find in 1 Corinthians 15, 21, it says, For as by a man came death, By a man is also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. That is, um, that is, we were in a sense in Adam when Adam sinned. And, um, Paul uses that argument when he's talking about, um, when he's talking about how that Abraham um, how Levi was in the loins of Abraham when Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. If you remember that, um, and you wonder what in the world is all that about? And his argument is that, is that Melchizedek was, was greater than Abraham because Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. And, and he says, furthermore, that the Levitical priesthood is less, is less, uh, is a notch down from the, the priesthood of Melchizedek because Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek when he was in the loins of his father. Now this was before Levi was born, correct? Before he was even thought of. But the argument there is that in, in Adam, we were in the loins of Adam when Adam sinned. Therefore, we are responsible for the sin of Adam. That sin was passed on to us. We retain the judgment of Adam just as if we were there and did it ourselves. The argument further is that we were also in the loins of Christ in a sense because he talks about being in Christ. 
And when Christ died and he was buried and he rose again, these things, if we are in Christ, happen to us as well. And so he, he says that for as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Watchman Nee explains the, the problem that we face, I think, in, in a way that I find it difficult. And so I'd like to read you a paragraph from his book, The Normal Christian Life. He says, at the beginning of our Christian life, we are concerned with our doing, not with our being. We are distressed rather by what we have done than by what we are. We think that if only we could rectify or fix a certain things, we should be good Christians, and we set out, therefore, to change our actions. But the result is not what we expected. We discover to our dismay that it is something more than just a case of trouble on the outside that there is, in fact, a more serious trouble on the inside. We try to please the Lord, but find something within that does not want to please him. We try to be humble, but there is something in our very being that refuses to be humble. We try to be loving, but inside we feel most unloving. We smile, and we try to look very gracious, but inwardly we feel most unloving. I'm sorry, we feel decidedly ungracious. The more we try to rectify matters on the outside, the more we realize how deep-seated is the trouble. Then we come to the Lord and say, Lord, I see it now. Not only have I done what I've done is wrong, I am wrong. And therein lies the problem. The good news then follows. And what is the good news? The good news is that Jesus provided a way from that natural state of disharmony and sinfulness that we find in our nature. Hebrews 9 verse 12 says, He entered once into the holy place, taking not the blood of goats and calves, but his own blood, thus securing an eternal, eternal redemption. For if the sprinkling of defiled persons with the blood of goats and bulls and with the ashes of an heifer sanctifies for the purification of the flesh. Now let's stop there a moment. So, so the blood that was sprinkled the sacrifices that were made purified for a, a moment, for a time, the sins of the people that they were offered for in the Old Testament. He says, if that happened, then how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the blood of Jesus provides for the removal of your sins for the purifying of your conscience so that you don't have to feel guilty anymore. That's one of the amazing things of the gospel is that, is that he can take away our, our guilt. How many of you love to be guilty? No hands. Why not? Guilt, feeling guilty is an awful thing, isn't it? And that's one of the amazing things of the gospel is that it takes away our guilt takes away our shame. 
And so, um, in Christ, in Christ, his death um, becomes ours as we are in him. And him, the old man, is crucified so that we're not slave to sin. Romans 6, verse 6 tells us, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. And see, this, this thing of being in Christ has a number of different aspects to it, I think, and I'm not sure I can get very many of them, but, but one of them is that what happened to Christ happened to us. The other thing I, I think is a similar concept and maybe part of the same thing is uh, in, um, now I can't remember the chapter and verse, where it talks about, it's John 15, I think, where it talks about, I'm the true vine, any, any branch and, and mead, uh, now I can't pull it, let's go to it. John chapter 15. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you as a branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same brings forth much fruit. For without me, ye can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth of the branch and is withered and men gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. So that, that um, we are to be in Christ. We need to be connected to him, not just, not just on, his, on his tree, as it were. We need to have that vital connection to him just as, so if you have a branch, you can have a branch on a tree. If you girdle that branch, what happens? It dies. Because it might be connected, but it's not connected. The life-giving sap is not flowing into it. And that life-giving sap needs to be flowing into our life from Jesus Christ if we're going to be alive. And as we are in him, that happens. So the blood of Jesus Christ provides for the removal of our sins. His death becomes ours, and so our old nature can be crucified, is crucified in him because of what he did on the cross. And his resurrection power can empower our lives, and that happened also. Uh, Romans 8, verse 10, And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. We just talked about that. But the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who made Jesus come again from the dead is in you, he who made Christ come again from the dead will in the same way through his spirit which is in you give life to your bodies which are now under the power of death. Now these are things that we know and understand in part. How can we know if they have become a reality in, in us? So we, we heard a lot, those of you who had the, the privilege of being here in the adult, Sunday, adult Bible school class this past week, heard a lot about the fruit of the Spirit and how that the fruit is a natural result of life in the plant. 
It's not something we put on like we're hanging plastic fruit on our tree, which might look pretty to the neighbors, but won't do anything to feed anybody. And that's not what we're looking for. We're looking for the real thing that comes out of the inside of us because of the Holy Spirit of God working in our lives. How can we know whether the gospel has properly impacted our lives? You see, when the gospel, when the gospel gets a hold of us and it changes us, then something happens to us. It happens we change. The, the way we think changes. What we do changes. What we are changes. What call should the gospel have on our lives as a result of us being Christians? I would like to look at a couple of those. I don't think this is all of them. I'm certain it's not all of them. Um, but there's a few that came to my mind as I was pondering this question. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. And I'd like to look first of all, First of all, at verse 29, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What did we just say? What is the gospel calling us to do? To be conformed to the image of Jesus. Now, I would like to go back and read the passage a little bit farther back just to see how that fits into the process of what, what God has, ha, is doing. Now he who searches, verse 27, now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So we find Jesus making intercession for us. So we're in this, we're in this process. We're in, we're in, um, we have become a Christian. But what is, what is God doing in our behalf? Um, how is he making it happen in our lives? First of all, he's making intercession for us. And we know that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And so all the things that happen in your life when you, when you are his and, and when you love him, those things he is working together for your good. We don't understand them. We often, we don't like them. And yet God is working them together for our good. For whom he foreknew or knew beforehand, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He wants you to, look, to be like Jesus, that he might be the firstborn among many, among many brethren, Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. And so is the process that God is working out in you, of calling you, um, justifying you, making you, making you clean and pure and holy, and glorifying you, making you become glorious like Jesus Christ. 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who can? If God is on your side and God is providing you everything you need to be like Jesus, what excuse do you and I have? What part do we play in this whole scheme? I think the part that we play is just to submit to the work of God in our life. But you know, um, I think one thing that hinders us from submitting to the work of God in our life is, that, is when we don't trust God. And, and I talk to myself, I'm not there. I mean, when these things happen in our life, what, what was that theme song? Um, sorry. <laughs> Forget that's the other Sometimes things don't go my way. That's it. That's it. Yeah, sometimes they don't, do they? The gospel calls us to be like Jesus. The gospel calls us to reconcile brothers to the truth. He calls us to do it in kindness and gentleness. 2 Timothy 2, verse 23. Have nothing to do with stupid, senseless controversies. You know that they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kindly to everyone, an apt teacher, forbearing, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant that they will repent and come to know the truth. And so he tells us several things here. Don't get involved in stupid arguments. Correct your brother gently. And the goal is coming to the truth. And the natural tendency is to avoid those that disagree with us or are a pain. But he calls us to something more. The gospel calls us to something more. Because Jesus didn't let us go just because we were a pain in the neck. And we most certainly were. He calls us to something more. I would say that if I am not willing to point my least favorite brother to truth and meekness and humility, then I have not been adequately touched with the gospel. The gospel calls us to spread the gospel. This, this command and desire by Jesus was expressed multiple times after his resurrection. We see that in Mark chapter 16, verse 14. It says, later he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table. And he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved but he who does not believe will be condemned. We find that the one we often think about, this happening one time, but it seems like it happened multiple times. Now, I wondered where, where was Jesus when we find the, the, the popular passage of Matthew 28, verse 28, that we uh, call the Great Commission. Where was he at when that happened? Well, I'm not sure. Maybe you know, and I, I don't. But, um, but... At least we have at least one other uh, situation where we're sure it's a different one than the first one. But Matthew 28, he says, I'd like to unpack that one a little bit. He says, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I, um, one of my favorite analogies of this one is, is calling it a gospel sandwich. Um, so we have, the, we have the bread on the bottom. Jesus says, I have all authority. That's the basis for what he says. Secondly, he says, go and make disciples. That's the command. And the assurance is on top. He says, I am, I will be with you always. Wherever you are, I'm there with you. So Jesus gave his church strategy plan here. And his first part is, he says, go. He says, go. Nothing happens till you go. You can talk, you can plan, you can study it. Jesus said, go. He said, go based on the authority of Jesus Christ. He has the keys of hell and of death. He has authority over all the power of the enemy. He has the power to change lives. He says, I've given you the gospel. I've given you the news. Take it and go. Go based on his command. If you've been saved from wrath, if you've been delivered from the power of darkness and translated into the kingdom of his dear son, Go. If Jesus is your Savior, your Master, your Enabler, your Lover, the one who died a horrible death for your salvation, who bore your own sin, bore your sins in His body on the tree, for God's sake, go. Where should you go? There's a story told of two shoe salesmen that were both sent to. Uh, to a uh, out-of-the-way place to see if they could sell shoes and expand the market. The one writes back and he says, it's a lousy location. Nobody wears shoes here. The second one checked out the place and, and he sent back the message, glorious opportunity. No one here has shoes. The needs are everywhere, brothers and sisters. If you open your eyes and if you go, you'll find them. One time, a long time ago, I asked God, I said, God, give me a vision. He said, go out there and you'll find it. I don't think I've done a very good job. Second thing he says, make disciples. He says, teach all nations. And the, the, the word there is make disciples. Make students of Jesus. That's the point of going. The going isn't just to go. It's not just a trip. Call them to be followers and learners of Jesus. Call them by the gospel. Tell them of their sin and tell them of their Savior. And he says, baptize them. Baptism is symbolic of what already happened. And yet it's more. It's also a commitment to follow Jesus. It's a public declaration to the world that I've chosen to take the way of Christ. Teach them to observe. Teaching should follow baptism. I'm not saying it should not come before at all. But I'm saying that it should follow after. It should be an ongoing process for believers. And teaching how to obey Jesus 
should be part of what is preached. The third time, the ter- third um, example of of Jesus' command is in Luke twenty four forty six. He said to them, "Thus it is written, and thus it is necessary for Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you." But tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are dued with power from on high. And he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass while he blessed them that he was parted from them and carried to heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising and blessing God. I'd like you to notice that this is the last command and the last declaration, the last urgent um, message of Jesus to his disciples before he lifted off into heaven. And I would argue that if it's Christ's last request his last command. That is the most urgent of all the commands that he's given us. I'm not saying it's the only urgent one. If you tell your children, give your children five duties and they do one and one is the most important, that's the only one they do, have they done what you told them to do? And the answer is no. But I am saying that sometimes we have made the Great Commission to be the least important of all the things that God tells us to do, and that's wrong. Jesus was declaring it is necessary for him to suffer and to rise from the dead so that remission of sins could be preached in his name to all nations. That is how far he wants it to go. He wants it to go everywhere. He says, you are witnesses of these things. He was talking specifically to them, but the same thing is true to us. If we are witnesses of the power of God in our own lives, then we have something to share with the nations. He does not send us alone. He says, I want you to go with the Holy Spirit. We need the power of the Spirit to go with us. If we do not have the power of the Spirit in our lives, then we're not going to have the power to take anything anywhere. If you are a Christian, you have the power of the Spirit. Do you have everything, all of the power of the Spirit that you need? I'm not saying that. Because I believe that the more we submit and and we grow, the more we know of Christ, the more in love with him we are, the more his, the, the, the power of his, of his presence is, is in us and flows through us. The more God can use us in ways that are impossible otherwise. 
But I will just say, if, 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 I, if your heart is not burdened for the lost, then you have not been adequately touched with the gospel. The gospel calls you to minister to those in trouble. But if anyone has this world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love dwell in him? Little children, let us not love in word and speech, but in deed and in truth. And in this inter interconnected world, the needs of millions are shouted out to us every day. And if you pay attention, it turns into a roar that almost suffocates you. And you realize you can't meet them all. There are so many requests that come to you in your email and in your mail and your everything else that, that um, if you can hardly give a tiny bit to each one. And yet to ignore the needs that are before us tends to harden our hearts. And the question is, how do we, what, what can we do? How do we process this? And I'm just going to give you a couple of, of things. One is we can care. We can care. The tendency is to just shut it out. I've seen so much. I've seen too much. I can't stand it. I don't want to hear about it. We can care. Secondly, we can pray. There is so much that we can do through prayer. God, as, as God's children pray, God works. God is the one with an unlimited pocketbook. He's the one with unlimited imagination, unlimited capability. Thirdly, I would suggest that we can consider the needs close home first and do what we can. I'm not suggesting that we should not care about our world. I think we should. And God brings our world to our own doorstep. And in some ways, our world is, is next door today in ways it never was before. Somebody did make a comment that I thought was interesting. He said, God never intended for us to be omniscient. Or did I get the word wrong? To know everything. Yes. God did not expect us to know everything. And somehow in our electronic age where we can know so much about so many things and we can see so much, it's almost like, it's almost like we get an overwhelming amount of information more than God intended people to, to get. Well, I'm not going to argue that one way or the other, but it does, it does seem that way. I will say this about, about giving. Um, not all giving is helpful in spite of how compelling it is. Sometimes giving separates friends. Sometimes it prevents a person from learning valuable lessons. But sometimes God means for us to be his hands and we make excuses. And we must pray and ask God what to do in the needs that we find among us. And even so, um, we agonize at times, uncertain if a hesitancy that we feel in our spirit is a hesitancy that God puts in there or whether it comes by selfishness in our hearts. 
some of these things have to be worked out between, in fact, probably all of these things need to be worked out between us and God as we come to God with an honest heart. But I will say that if your heart is not touched with the needs of others, you've not been adequately touched by the gospel. The gospel calls you to forsake all. Matthew 8, Mark 8, verse 35 says, For whosoever will save his life will lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake in the gospels, the same shall save it. That first part of this verse we find at least four times in Scripture. And this is one of them. Turn with me, if you would, to uh, Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, uh, verse 28. For which of you, intending to build a tower, sitteth not down first, and counteth the cost, whether he have sufficient to finish it? Lest haply, after he have laid the foundation, and is not able to finish it, all that mock it, behold, it began to mock him, saying, This man began to build, and wasn't able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, sits not down first, and consults, whether he be able with 10,000 to meet him that cometh against him with 20,000. Or else while the other is yet a great way off, he sendeth ambassage and desires conditions of peace. So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsakes not all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor yet for the dunghill, but men cast it out. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus says we are to count the cost. Count the cost of being a disciple. He says if you want to be his disciple, there must be absolute surrender. The cost of absolute surrender, or that is the absolute surrender, is surrender of everything you have, everything you are, and everything you dream of. That means you're willing to give whatever Jesus calls for. Give up whatever is necessary to do what he asks you to do, and be content with the things that he gives you. Whenever surrender stops, we've ceased from being a disciple, at least in that area of our life. Because a disciple is a learner. And you cannot learn when you do not submit to the teacher. When we have ceased to be a disciple, a learner, we are saltless salt, useless for what we are created to be. There's a lot more we could say about giving up everything. But I will say that if we have not, if we're not ready to forsake everything for the call of God, we've not been adequately touched by the gospel. In conclusion, what are some things that hinder or prevent the heart from being touched? I think one is lack of humility. Being like Jesus requires it. To learn of me, he said, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. 
There's lack of love. We will not pay the price of reconciliation unless we love like Jesus. There is selfishness. I want it my way. I want it in my terms. I value comfort more than the heart of Jesus and the souls of men. There is hardness to the needs of man. Inappropriate feeling of care. A lack of clarity of responsibility when we either take on more than what we're responsible for and God intends or, or we... We um, try to get by with less. I believe that the gospel touch, as we focus on the gospel and we consider the gospel, it can keep our hearts soft and remember that all we have belongs to God. There is, There can be a lack of surrender of all to the master, which often I think is uh, caused by a lack of trust in God. Perhaps we, as, um, as we were told this past week, perhaps we believe God is a rascal rather than the giver of every good gift. And so we are afraid to surrender everything to him. And all of these, I think, can be a result of not being defeated by the gospel. What do I mean by that? I mean that the gospel needs to defeat us. We need to, to bow down to the gospel and allow the gospel to do its crucifying work in our lives. To call us to everything that God, that the gospel calls us to be. That happens often because we've not seen our own sinfulness. We don't know how, we don't understand that that I am sinful before God. Not just by what I've done, but what I am. Or we may have a, and that's as often because of, or I don't know, it goes both ways. Because we have a substitute gospel and a substitute focus. And I believe that taking a hard look at the gospel and, and what the gospel is, a hard look inside, a hard look at Jesus, and a hard look at what he did in our behalf can soften that heart and prepare us for the usefulness that God calls us to do and to be. God bless you. Let's have a song.